what is wrong with you? You're a cold, heartless, unfeeling, selfish human. Um, and you deserve to die alone, surrounded by fifty cats. Like, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm literally quoting directly from some Instagram comments I've had. You know, wow. as somebody who is out there as a childless by choice person. Welcome back to Dear Shandy, listeners. Hello, Andy. Hello. How are you today? I'm good. I just had a great nap. <laughs> Yeah, we've been gearing up for this one, this hot topic. Yeah. I feel like I've been gearing up for this hot topic for the last 20 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> this is a big one. Yeah. I have to tell you, I was first introduced to the book uh, written by our guest today by a friend of mine earlier this summer. And I don't know if I could have predicted how much this book would change my life. And I'm just so honored that she is here with us today. Uh, we are joined by journalist, publishing consultant, and author of 2017's Material Girl, Mystical World, 2018's Sober Curious, 2019's The Numinous Astro Deck, and 2020's The Sober Curious Reset. She is the creator of the term sober curious and has helped spearhead a global movement to reevaluate our individual and collective relationships to alcohol and her most recent book this is the book i'm talking about women without kids the revolutionary rise of an unsung sisterhood was released earlier this year and is truly one of the most impactful reads i can remember she is also the host of the Sober Curious podcast and the Women Without Kids podcast. Ruby Warrington, what an honor it is to have you here today. Well, thank you for that amazing intro. I'm so happy that the book was so impactful for you and that a, that friend recommended it to you. So I'm really excited to get into this conversation with you and hear what it what it brought up for you. Yeah. Uh, I have to tell you when I was assembling my notes and I have far too many pages, <laughs> but <laughs> I was at a coffee shop and then sat next to me, uh, two women met and it was clear that they were there meeting because their children went to the same school. And then they proceeded to talk for over an hour straight about their children exclusively. And this is while I'm like, I've got this book out and I'm like trying to take my notes. <laughs> and I felt for the millionth time in my life that there's something wrong with me. There's mm. a chip missing. And so I just, I'm just so excited to talk to you today. It just felt very fitting that that was the experience I had while putting this together. And I also want to add that as with Ruby's entire book, this conversation is meant for all women. So this includes mothers and those who are childless by circumstance and childless by choice. Mm -hmm. So Ruby, just as you helped spearhead the sober curious global movement, I genuinely believe you are spearheading a cultural shift in how we consider womanhood without motherhood. Mm. What made you want to write this book and how is the finished product different than you anticipated? Well, I love that you found yourself in that situation too, because it just highlights, doesn't it? Um, and what you said, I felt for the gazillionth time, there was something wrong with me. There must be a chip missing. And mm. I'm assuming, because I didn't really get your background before we sat down today in terms of you know your personal orientation in this area. Um, but I'm, I'm guessing from what you say, that's like me, you never felt a desire to become a mother um, or that you were uncertain if you wanted to have children. <laughs> yeah, I would go with uncertain and always thinking that it would hit me the way right. I was always promised it would. And that yes. if I didn't do it, I would regret it. 
Yes, same, same. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's interesting. Yes, I think that this book um, will hopefully spearhead new conversations in this area of how we sort of think about womanhood separate from motherhood, the two having been so closely correlated for so, so long. But actually, I think the movement has already been well underway for quite some time. Um, the birth rate in every single country all around the world has been dropping, decreasing very steadily over the course of the last century or so. Um, and there are millions and millions, if not billions now, of women without kids for many different reasons. And yet it is still seen absolutely as the norm to have children, mm -hmm. to want children, to want to be a mother to not only that, but find your ultimate fulfillment in motherhood. And, you know, we also hear so many more women, particularly younger women, being very vocal about, well, you know what, motherhood is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And maybe I didn't actually want this after all. And maybe there were other things I wanted to do with my life, but I didn't really think I had the choice. That's another conversation that's mm -hmm. kind of been bubbling for a while now as well. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of how I came to this work, as we've just established, yes. So I I never felt strongly called to motherhood. And throughout my 20s and 30s, I would kind of put these arbitrary dates on the calendar. When I get married, when I turn 30, when I hit 35, <laughs> by the time I'm, you know, 39, thinking <laughs> at, at one of these points, mm -hmm. the switch would be flicked. And yes. all of a sudden I would be overwhelmed with baby fever just as I had witnessed so many of my friends experience. Um, and then it would be the time to have kids. And it just never happened for me, meaning the desire never kicked in. Um, and so I had always felt so other, so strange and had held and carried so much kind of internalized shame um, and self-doubt about this path, about being a woman without kids. Um, and it was when I reached my early 40s and actually, interestingly, as other people began to stop asking me <laughs> when I would have children and when it sort of seemed to become more accepted that I just it just for whatever reason hadn't happened for me, I began to feel an easing off of that self-doubt and more confidence, actually, that this was always and had always been the right path for me. And it just struck me that there was virtually no discourse around being a woman without kids, you know, um, mm -hmm. And so I suppose I, I came to the project wanting, number one, to really understand on a very deep level what had made me the way that I am, where this, you know, urge not to have children had come from. Um, so I was really fascinated and just kind of unpacking my personal story around it. But then with my journalist's hat on, I kind of zoomed out. And like I said, it became very quickly apparent that by no means am I the only one. And increasingly, I am no longer the anomaly. Like I said, there are now so many women without kids, whether it's by choice, by circumstance. And so it seemed to me that there was actually a movement underway that did not have a, a voice necessarily. Um, hence, the subtitle for the book is The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood, because it really felt like that as well. You know, in my early 40s, I sort of also started looking around and having thought that you know, quote unquote, all my friends had now had kids, I realized that actually there were lots of women in my life who, like me, had not become mothers, again, all for their own differing reasons. Um, but it wasn't something that we ever spoke about, you mm. know, there wasn't yeah. a 
space or a forum for us to have a conversation about what it meant to be women without kids. And I found myself getting really interested in who who are these women in my sisterhood that we didn't, this sisterhood that we didn't even know existed, you know? So I, I wrote the book because I wanted to help validate this path for however somebody finds themselves here. Um, but also to find, to create a, a way for women without kids to find each other and come together and actually talk about what's happening underneath the surface of our individual choices in this area. Oh my goodness, what an answer. <laughs> I have to ask you because I shed many a tear reading this book oh. and some of them were, you know, beautiful tears. Some of them were difficult tears. And mm. I've read many books on this topic. I've read Regretting Motherhood, The Baby Decision. Mm. I have mm. sleuthed the Reddit forums about regret <laughs> on this topic. And nothing has made me dig deeper. I think I was always looking for answers externally, you know, like polling people. Nothing has made me, has forced me to look internally like your book has. So I have Mm. to ask you, how many tears did you shed writing it? Oh, my body weight, at least. (laughs) I mean, you asked me as well, like, how, how is the book different from how I envisaged it? It actually is exactly how I envisaged it, because I wanted it to be part sort of memoirish, like personal excavation, but then very much a kind of anthropological sort of look a journalistic look at like what's happening um and so i i think it, i think i did quite a good job of of bringing those weaving those two kind of threads together but i suppose what i hadn't anticipated was what an emotional journey it would be for me um and how personally impacted i would be by writing the book mm-hmm. you know it really um yes i feel so much more at peace with this being exactly the right path for me and I've touched touched in with some very painful reasons that this is the right path for me too, you know? Yes. So in the first chapter of the book, you introduce the concept that you coin the motherhood spectrum. And it's an integral thread throughout the book. I was wondering if for anyone who hasn't read the book yet, certainly planning to, can you explain the motherhood spectrum? Yeah, sure. So like most women, I had been raised to believe that my role, beyond my role, my biological imperative as a woman was to become a mother. You know, it's right there in the mythology of maiden mother crone, right? We kind of, it's this life stage that every woman is destined to go through. But when, again, I started to kind of examine this objectively and look at all of the factors that sort of play into our feelings about becoming a mother, all of the material factors that might impact our capacity to take on the role of parenthood, um, it seemed to make much more sense that there would exist a spectrum of both desire and aptitude when it came to embarking on the path of parenthood. And that actually what seemed like it was more normal in a way was for there to be, yeah, for, for individuals to have varying degrees of desire of capacity for parenthood based on a huge number of factors that influence all of us in different ways, you know, whether it's our financial situation, whether it's our cultural background, the family we were raised in, our relationship status, our career goals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, our physical well-being, our mental health, all of these things are going to have an impact on how ready we feel for parenthood at different times in our life mm-hmm. um, and will ultimately impact whether or not we become parents. So the idea of the motherhood spectrum is to do away with this kind of binary idea of you're either a mother or a non-mother mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually say, well, 
at different times in your life, you might feel quite differently about this, depending what's going on for you in your life, you know, and that's okay. Um, and the most important thing is to just keep touching base with yourself and sort of orient yourself on that spectrum. And to, because I think there are so many, and, and you, you touched on one of the biggest ones already, this idea that anyone who doesn't become period parents is destined to regret it. Mm -hmm. It's such a powerfully emotive kind of concept, was, this idea horrible. of <laughs> regretting this one decision. I mean, it's honestly one of the only decisions that you cannot unmake. So the stakes, oh. the stakes really could not be higher. You could get a tattoo removed. You can't do, undo that. Right, right, exactly. The stakes could not be higher, yeah. especially when we take into account how um, heavily biased the gender division is typically when it comes to the actual kind of hands-on labor and mental labor of child rearing. Any, for any woman, this is really central to how is the rest of my life going to play out? Yeah. So that sort of that niggling, oh, but if you don't do it, you will regret it. It's incredibly, it's incredibly difficult um, to, to override that and sort of stay true to yourself if you truly believe that parenthood is not right for you. But along with that, there are so many other projections, you know, um, this is you'll never be feel true, real experience true love until you find it until you have a child. Um, you'll never be truly fulfilled. Um, you're letting us down, us <laughs> being, I don't know, parents, society at large, the economy, you name it. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a huge amount of pressure and a huge amount of external expectation in this realm, which can very easily kind of um, cloud a person's decision making and true feelings about the subject. So presenting this idea of the spectrum was really about sort of allowing people to, yeah, empowering people to self-determine based on what they know about themselves, um, the pressures that they're dealing with the desires they might have for their lives and the weighing that against this decision rather than going along with this kind of like, oh, well, I guess because everybody says I should and because I might regret it, I should just go for it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I've, I've truly had that exact thought before. And I loved how you the idea of a spectrum makes it just so much more OK to really waffle because right. I've, I have envied the the women in my life who have either had who have had any clarity whatsoever. Yeah. So whether that be like, I've always known I wanted to be a mother or the women who are like, I've always known I didn't want to be a mother. It's like, there are so many of us who are on that spectrum somewhere yes. in between. And you can yes. often feel like the fact that you don't have that clarity in innately makes you just, I don't know, there's something wrong with you. Okay. Right. So another concept of yours is the mommy binary. Mm. Could you touch on the mommy binary's roots and what your hopes are for this term that you've coined? So the mommy binary, there are two sort of um, versions of this, I suppose. First and foremost, you kind of touched on it with your little anecdote earlier. There's the mothers and I was going to, I was going to, versus mothers versus non-mothers. Any binary kind of almost automatically sort of pits one against the other in a way and positions mm -hmm. one as better than the other, right? Good, bad, right, wrong, mums, non-mums. Um, within that mummy binary, mums are seen as complete, mature. They have done their duty. They are on the right path. They are responsible adults, et cetera, Selfless. et cetera. Selfless. Non-mothers are often the seen as the opposite of all those things. Immature, deluded, um, damaged maybe, something wrong with them, selfish, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. When we know that all of those adjectives can be applied to 
anybody at yeah. any time, mothers and non-mothers and yeah. everybody in between. There, right? there are some selfish mothers out there, that's for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. And so um, then, but then within the, within the camp of non-mothers, we also see another binary between the ones who can't have kids and the ones who don't want kids. Mm. And I think within the can't have kids, there's often a lot of sympathy. These people have tried. Um, they had the right instinct, but they weren't sadly unable to fulfill on that. And then you have the true evil, selfish bitches <laughs> who are the women who never wanted kids. You know, what is wrong with you? You're a cold, heartless, unfeeling, selfish human. Um, and you deserve to die alone, surrounded by 50 cats. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm literally quoting directly from some Instagram comments I've had, you know, wow. as somebody who is out there as a childless by choice person. So these are the two sort of by iterations of the binary, I suppose, which are just so um, flattening of the actual multidimensional nature of human experience completely do away with um, any investigation into our motivations for having kids or not having kids. I think having kids can be a very selfish choice if you're having kids purely to fulfill some sort of idea about how I should look to the rest of society. Totally. You know, not having kids can be very selfless too if you're realizing, well, I don't actually have the financial or mental capacity to be the kind of parent that I would want to be. And I would rather channel what resources I do have into the other human beings in my life that already exist. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're just two very small examples of why the binary is a false binary. And I think, I mean, all binary thinking is just so divisive and we've got, there's so much divisiveness in the world now. And we're just seeing mm -hmm. what damage it's doing to people's mental health, to people's feelings of community, to relationships generally. Um, and so I think this idea of a spectrum, yeah, it helps to sort of do away with that binary thinking, you know. Yeah. Um, it came out of my work with Sober Curious, which similarly sought to do away with this idea that there are problem drinkers and normal drinkers mm -hmm. and that anybody who's not a problem drinker can just continue drinking without experiencing any problems and never needs to, you know, address their drinking, et cetera, et cetera, when that's just not true either. So it actually came very directly out of that work. Mm, we love nuance here. Yeah. Andy. And for what it's worth, Andy already knows about your, I think, four cats. Yeah, I was going to say you're 46 cats shy of where you're supposed to be when you I die. I have one cat. I have one oh, cat. Where did you get I, the idea that I have four cats? I saw somewhere that you had four cats. Maybe you lied. <laughs> No, no, no. I have adopted four cats throughout the course of my relationship oh. with my husband. Okay, Andy's so, a big cat yeah, person. I was hoping to okay. see some cat stuff so, here. As a matter of fact, I, I'm purposely trying to keep my mouth shut because we have a lot to get through and I'm being quiet. The only thing I was going to pipe in for was maybe you could show me your cat, but I, <laughs> since it's not in the nearby vicinity... I'm going to just accept that I won't see it. Yeah. He I, does like, he likes getting on Zoom. So he might come up and say hi in a bit. But no, okay. sadly, I had to leave um, the other cats in England when I emigrated here to America. Um, oh, it okay. was determined that they wouldn't take well to living in a little shoebox apartment in New York City, having had like an outdoor space. Mm. Okay. You touch in the book on the objectification of the female body by saying, quote, the bearing and raising of children was positioned as women's biological imperative, a message that is essentially unimpeachable. Who can argue with nature? Mothers are, this is all still within the quote, mm. uh, mothers are natural and valid and non-mothers are defective and aberration. 
So mm-hmm. you call this being the source of, quote, the shame and otherness that any of us here have ever felt about being women without kids. My question for you, Ruby, is what do you say to people who feel it is biological, procreation is an evolutionary drive, and who are we to argue with nature? <laughs> well, <laughs> what I would say... <laughs> I actually spoke to an evolutionary biologist about this who confirmed my feelings on the subject, which are that there is actually no such thing in human beings as a biological instinct to procreate. Um, So the way that she described it was what human beings need from an evolutionary perspective is a sex drive. So long as enough humans are having enough sex with enough people of the opposite sex, eventually some babies will come along. But she confirmed that the sex drive is not actually connected to a desire, a conscious desire to to reproduce. (laughs) I just heard Andy's mind blowing. She she pointed out, she's like, you know, when, when rabbits are doing it, they're not thinking about baby rabbits, about making baby rabbits. They're just following the instinct to have sex. So this was her, this was her take on it. Um, And so also in our conversation and other conversations I've had since on this subject, I mean, honestly, I think what separates human beings from other animal species is that we have, you know, we have conscious awareness that allows us to override our biological instincts or our biology and make choices that are actually better suited to our survival. This is one of the reasons that human beings have come to dominate in the way that we have on this planet. <laughs> you could look at my dad, we'll talk about, well, you know, in tribes of apes, there's the alpha males and they impregnate all the females and this is who we're descended from. And I was like, dads, did the apes create the internet? Did the apes create <laughs> like sanitation and capitalism? No, like human beings, and human ingenuity is about employing, or it, it kind of like is a, a, a process of our psychology being separate from our biology, actually. And so I think that, you know, the story of human evolution and our development as a species on this planet is very much about us divorcing from our biological sort of Ooh. drives. Ooh. And I suppose the other thing is, okay, so if there's a human biological imperative to procreate, that is, I think we'd have to say it has to be connected to the sex drive, right? Then how do we explain, you know, homosexuality? So do we, are we saying that homosexuality is also not natural? If it's not natural to not procreate, you know, mm-hmm. it gets into some pretty sort of tricky areas, very interesting kind of philosophical areas, I think. But the fact that the birth rate has been decreasing so steadily over the past 100, 150 years is di- in direct correlation to women having more agency over how our bodies are viewed and quote unquote used in society you know Um, the the more the more payment the more power and agency women have over how many children we have the fewer children women have (laughs) it's kind of the bottom line (laughs) what were you about to say no i just find it so interesting that humans have strived to be so non-animalistic you know everything Mm. we do is like we're not animals we're higher beings Mm -hmm. and like you can't even maybe in the uk you can do this but you can't even show a woman's nipple on any tv unless it's paid tv yet all we talk about is babies. When are you having a baby? Like old right. ladies are asking you when you're having a baby. What baby? Baby, baby. But yeah. no one talks about, oh, 
you're putting your penis in there, right? <laughs> right. Like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. But have the baby. <laughs> right. It's, it's very weird. Yes. It's very interesting that people sort of forget to equate human sexuality with human procreation, you know? Mm, yeah. And the fact that, I mean, there's a whole chapter in the book called Sexual Evolution, where I talk about, yeah, it's kind of exactly this, the fact that women's bodies and women's se female sexuality in general sort of being positioned as this machine of reproduction, this technology of reproduction is very much tied to industrialization, capital capitalism, et cetera, um, which has required a continual source of fresh labor and consumer power to power the growth that we've seen. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's very interesting that the human population took well, since the dawn of civilization to reach 1 billion human beings in around 1800, it's only taken 200 years for us to surpass 8 billion human beings. Mm. So you could actually say that the number of the, 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 the speed at which the human population has been reproducing over the past 200 years is unnatural, mm. you know, is actually a, a, a result Ooh. of industrialization, a result of Agri you know, agriculture, meaning that people are able to, we're able to feed a much bigger population, a result of advances in medicine that could also be seen as unnatural. You make a very strong uh, <laughs> case that we are, we are inexorably headed towards extinction as a result of our overreproduction. Oh, 100%. Right. Okay. Right. So you, well, you... I mean, not anytime soon. I mean, the, <laughs> the population, the population is set to plateau somewhere around the middle second half of this century, at around 11 billion humans. That's a hell of, of a lot of humans. So it's be very few parking spots. Very few. <laughs> very few. Will we still have cars? If Elon Musk has anything to do with it, we'll have 20 billion people and 20 of cars. Uh, yeah. yeah. So you touched on labor just now. And in the book, you say, quote, the capitalist economic system still relies on women's unpaid child rearing labor and, quote, pronatalism also requires the continued stigmatization of non-mothers, unquote. In researching women without kids, what surprised you the most about the concept of labor of love, which I think we huh. generally have this positive correlation with. Oh, it's a labor of love. Absolutely. Again, that's just one of these sort of very sentimental cliches that we trot out without really thinking about what that means. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, through reading many sort of feminist scholars from the 1970s onwards, um, it became very clear if, if COVID actually didn't hadn't shone a light on this very clearly, that the, the labor, meaning the physical and mental day in, day out, unremitting work, hands-on work of raising children is actually integral to the functioning of our economic system and our workforce as it currently stands. And yet none of this work is remunerated. None of it is actually built into the economy, right? It's mm -hmm. just expected to be performed because we do it out of love, because mm -hmm. these are our children, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there was a big movement in the 1970s, Wages for Housework, which sought to address this, you know, and to show that actually the labor that largely women do um, in the home is actually vital and vitally important to the thriving of the economy, not least because the people who are being cared for, raised um, in those home environments are going to become the laborers of the future, the taxpayers of the future and the consumers of the future, 
without yeah. whom this economic, this um, capitalist economic model cannot function. It's, I've actually read statistics that say it's 20% of GNP is the unpaid right. labor of parents. Right. And which mothers is specifically. Huge. Yeah. Right. Which is huge. And I, I brought up COVID because there was, I think, in the situation where, you know, childcare was taken away, schools were closed down. It just became very clear that without all of those external support structures that enable women to kind of work outside of the home and earn a wage in addition to the work they do in the home, it's virtually impossible for people to to do that, you know? Um, it's also, so, you, could see yeah. it, you could see it in the policy, how hypocritical it is from our politicians. They, you know, they're all, all these pro-life guys, you know, they're like, you can't, yeah, do it. You can't abort any child. Doesn't matter what it is, rape, you know, whatever. Doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Incest. And then there's no support on the other side. It's like, but yeah. we're not going to pay for anything on the other side. It's all on you. And then you think to yourself, why? Like, is this a thing about religion or life? They don't care about life or religion. These right. politicians don't care about anything except getting reelected. What they care right. about is, I think, you know, populating the military, making sure that we keep the economy cranking and compete with China. And mm -hmm. I think that anyone who thinks that's not the case is really fooling themselves as if these guys are like, oh, you know, I've gone to church today and I've thought about this and a woman really should keep her child. Mm. Right. It's just very, very frustrating to watch. Yeah. It is incredibly frustrating. It's one of the deepest hypocrisies that exists within the political system and, and within this situation that, around abortion currently. And because they're because there are such strong emotions in this area of life, it's very easy to whip up a crowd who are very, you know, but this is a baby, this is a human being, like to, to kind of trigger all of those kind of big emotions in this area. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I do think that some of the pro-life cohort really do genuinely believe that this is, you know, that it's absolutely wrong to end a life at whatever point. But yes, the political motivation Mm -hmm. for creating policy around that is, I would say, yes, purely profit and growth driven. Mm -hmm. mm, I have to touch on the labor thing because we always pull our shandies to ask them for questions when we interview hot topic guests like yourself. And let me tell you, I was bombarded. <laughs> like I went to the coffee shop. I thought I was going to be there for 45 minutes. I came back two and a half hours later oh, and wow. my head was spinning. And one of the comments came from a Shandy who is, I think, 57. And she said she was struggling at this point in her life with feeling like her life didn't have purpose and wondering if had she had kids, she would have. And then it was really sweet. A 52 year old Shandy responded to her mm -hmm. <laughs> to say that she had she was a doctor and had had four kids and took 10 years away from her career to parent. And now that they had all left, she felt like she didn't have any purpose. Huh. And it was oh, just wow. such a beautiful moment between two women mm, at a similar stage, sweet. having gone through such a different path. Yeah. And it shows the sacrifice. You know, mm -hmm. yes, you can have this purpose through motherhood, but mm -hmm. it comes at a cost. And I love how you talk in the book about the idea mm -hmm. of having it all. Mm -hmm. And this blew my mind that the woman who first coined having it all, who wrote that book, never had having children. She never yeah. had children. <laughs> Fraud. <laughs> Helen, Helen Gurley Brown who was the then editor of Cosmopolitan magazine, a very famous editor, and her book, obviously, Having It All, a real, like, you know, feminist stalwart. And it was, you know, positioned as, yes, yes, women, you can get an education, have a career, get a 401k, be financially independent, and be mothers. 
And this is sort of the path that anybody born from the 1970s onwards, so Gen X, millennials, have very much grown up with that messaging. Um, and yet Helen never had children. This is mm. <laughs> That blew my mind. <laughs> it blew my mind when I discovered <laughs> wow. it too. And she, I don't think she ever necessarily intended for the book to be read that way, um, but it was sort of just picked up on because actually it suited the incoming more conservative um, administration in the 1980s to say, yes, okay, feminism, yes, we agree, women should have equal rights to agency over their lives as men. Yes, great. But also, you know, you still want to have kids, don't you? Like, make sure you keep having kids too. <laughs> and I think that what we've seen as well, like, you know, with the sort of younger cohort now who are talking about, well, just how damn hard it is to be a mother and to have any kind of like a, a life outside of the home or any sort of time to yourself um, and how it's actually really, really virtually impossible to do it all unless you happen to be incredibly well resourced. And there are many mm. ways that that resource can show up in a person's life, whether it's financial, whether it's, um, you know, support from a very equal hands-on co-parent, whether it's support from a larger kind of like connected family community network, those are all kinds of resources that enable and have always actually enabled women to work outside of the home as well as have raised children. But without those supports in place, um, it's very, very, very difficult. Um, as you say, you know, all of the all of the responsibility falls on the parent or parents who are directly taking care of the children. Okay, so it's impossible to discuss the making of more humans without discussing the planet and climate oh, change. Yeah. I love how much you talked about this in the book. People always touch on this. The question mm. is, is it ethical? Some believe it's unethical to bring life into our rapidly changing world. What are your thoughts on parenthood as it relates to our changing climate? This is, I mean, certainly among younger people, um, that question, is it ethical to bring a, a child into the planet, given not just the actual changes that we're starting to see come about right on schedule, as the scientists have been saying for decades. Um, but given that politicians and corporations are so unwilling to really enact real change mm -hmm. in this area, very so easy to make policy when it comes to changing, controlling women's bodies, but <laughs> not so easy when it comes to, you know, how we consume and use fuel, for example, as one example. Um, Yes, this is a big question. I coined this, I called this cohort childless by climate change. Um, and I think it's very, very real. You know, there are really people who are who are deeply um, distraught over this question. And in the book, I make the point that, yes, on the one hand, our planet is an, a finite, a finite size and resource, and we have we can't just keep adding more and more and more people expecting the systems that operate, you know, to keep us alive, to be able to sustain that growth, level of growth. And on the other hand, coming back to what has helped humans thrive as, for as long and, and, and as prolifically as we have, human ingenuity, you know, if we could direct the lion's share of human ingenuity in the coming decades towards ways to create and consume clean energy that doesn't have the same impact on the planet, um, then, you know, we can continue to have all the kids we want. <laughs> and, and I suppose the overarching point being that it's not necessarily that people are the problem when it comes to climate change. It's the way that we use and consume energy and other resources on the planet. Mm. 
Okay, so I want to circle back a bit to regret, just because regret did come up so much with our Shandy's questions. Mm. We're going to talk about old age and the promise. And I would argue the threat Hmm. that the regret of not... Yeah, it is. It feels like a threat. threat. It has felt like a threat Mm -hmm. more recently to me. In my younger years, I remember thinking, oh, well, by then I won't have to worry about it because it will have hit me that I want them. Right. You know, you interviewed countless women for this book, including older women who never had kids. Mm -hmm. What did you learn about regret and how they look back on their decision? What I learned is that when it's a conscious choice not to have children, there are no never any regrets. I did. I have yet to meet an older woman um, who chose not to have children um, and who regretted that choice. So that was very comforting. Mm-hmm. I have met women who've been perhaps on the fence and didn't prioritize it, having moments of, oh, things could have gone differently. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps like your, you know, 57 year old sort of thinking, wait, maybe there is something that's maybe missing here. So I, I don't think it would be right to kind of come on here and say, no, you won't regret it, you know, because chances are you might, you know, but there are many things that we might regret in life. And I suppose where I'm at with it these days, there really isn't any way of knowing how the future is going to play out. You know, when you have a child, you have no idea who you're going to get and how your relationship's going to be and how that's going to play out over the decades. You know, I read the a statistic that one in four American adults are estranged from their families of origin. <gasps> wow. So there's no guarantee what? that you're going to have this warm, cozy, loving relationship with your kids. Beyond that, I think it's something like 60% of people in nursing homes never receive any visitors, right? Oh. So it, it could be that your child doesn't live as long as you. I mean, there are so many scenarios where, you know, you might regret having kids or you're not going to necessarily end up, like I said, with this kind of, you know, Hallmark greeting card Christmas with everybody gathered <laughs> around the fire, like just so happy to be with family. That's mm. okay. So then let's layer on the fact that 80% of people say they come from a dysfunctional family. Wow. You know, there's a lot, um, we're, we're incredibly sentimental about family. Um, and I think that that idea that you'll regret not creating a family, a biological family of your own is steeped in that sentimentality, this idea that it's going to look a certain way. And so I suppose, yes, there's never any guarantee that things are going to play out the way you might want them to. And with that in mind, I am more interested in looking at, well, what will I regret if I don't do this year? What will I regret if I don't do this week? What conversation will I regret not having with my mother before she passes? You know, like really focusing on living my life with as much authenticity um, and courage as I can now, today, and trusting that, as we know, you know, doors open and close unexpectedly in our lives all the time. The more Mm. present we can be, the more conscious we can be of the choices we're making today, the less likely we are to wind up 20 years down the line thinking, I wish, I wish this, I wish Mm. that, you know? Mm. So, and I also, yeah, I think that especially given that this is quite a new conversation and that women without kids have been traditionally very ostracized and very much the only ones, the outsiders. I think that a degree of loneliness or maybe a slight feeling of emptiness could come from just not really having any community or feeling that you've got community as somebody who doesn't have children. And so I think the more spaces and places we can provide for people without kids 
to come together, build lives together, do cool stuff together, um, the less we're likely to feel that kind of that sense of something lacking or missing as we mm -hmm. age. This is maybe a bit utopian, but these are all new things to be thinking about. And I'm excited to see unfold, you know. There was a, you quoted, I forget her name, the author of Regretting Motherhood or not. Or in a donut. She does talk about regret and how it's used sort of as a, as a threatening tool. But, mm. oh, it was another book I read too, actually. I read in the baby decision that you will regret either choice. And there's a right. freedom in that. Like there, you will have moments of regretting either way. And to quote, I think you had quoted Orna Donath in Regretting Motherhood on the idea that we have this internalized vision of motherhood. It's It's been fed to us since we were born of how that will give you that purpose. Your mm -hmm. life will have meaning, that image of a baby coming into your life and giving you meaning. And mm. so you can't help but correlate motherhood with that, even though that's that might not ring true for you, but you still feel the lack of that by not exploring it. Yes. So let's talk. And I think it's interesting as well, just to touch on that. Some people, some people say, oh, I don't like the term childless because it says that there's something lacking, but then child-free is about, you know, there's something that you don't have as well. I don't like being defined by the thing that I don't have, you know? Hmm. And part of me sort of wants to say, well, when you don't have a child, you don't have a child. Like there is something that you don't have. And why do, and it comes back to this idea that, you know, a full life is a life where we have it all and we experience it all. But actually I think that a, a life that is replete and a life that fits us is really about determining what is for me and what is not for me and being okay with not having everything, not experiencing everything, you know, mm, and being okay, with the, being okay with the fact that, yes, I might not have those experiences, and they might be wonderful experiences, but I'm okay with it. Acceptance. Mm. Acceptance. In the book you called Acceptance, <sighs> the one thing that can make us somewhat impervious to regret. Mm. And you said, quote, the oft-cited notion that women without kids will regret not becoming parents, delivering the ultimate in existential FOMO. <laughs> Whoa. A lot of you, you, it's, your book is so quotable. Yeah. Okay, so we have to talk about purpose then. Perfect segue. Mm. The 57-year-old Shandy who, who commented, what would you tell a woman who feels she's lacking purpose in her life and wonders if children might have, that, might have been that or could be that? What, what would you tell them? Well, there's a concept I discuss in the book called generativity, um, which I think is very much tied to the idea of purpose. And partic in particular, so this is one of Eric Erickson was a psychologist working in the 1950s and 1960s. He came up with these sort of seven stages of human development. Um, and I think it's either the fifth or the sixth stage is generativity. And this is the stage that's kind of, you know, later midlife, sort of mid forties through sixties. And generativity is often in women associated with parenting and men as well. Um, but the idea is that the generative phase of life is where you really start to question how is my how does my life count what can i do with my life to make it count will i look back thinking that i i mattered you know i think that's very connected to purpose um but what was interesting is that even in the 1950s erickson didn't equate didn't he didn't actually equate it with parenting he didn't say that you have to be a parent to experience or enact your own sort of versions of generativity and researchers since then have really expanded the definition to kind of talk about all different sorts of ways that people can enact generativity in their lives. A simple way to think that I like to think about it is um, it sounds like generous activity. 
So anything Mm. that you're doing in your life or any choices that you're making that are in some way, and it might not be like a direct kind of hands-on way, but that are in some way having a positive impact on the lives of others, like doing this podcast, for example, Mm. um, could be considered an act of generativity. So for anybody who's feeling a bit lost or, you know, sort of what's the point or does my life really matter, really starting to think about or just noticing ways that you can, yeah, perform actions, perform put ideas out whatever it might be that are in some that is in some way going to have a positive impact on the other people in the world and not least on the next generations coming through um can be a way to connect back to the idea of purpose i think there's a term i came across um cultural parents which i really like cultural Mm -hmm. parents are you know ceos founders authors people who are kind of in some way taking it upon themselves to shape the culture um, and have an impact on the culture with what they're doing in the world. Um, and I personally, given that my books do have this sort of, I wouldn't describe them as self-help, but they're certainly helpful, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, they're not prescriptive is what I mean. I'm never, I'm never going to write a book that tells you do A, B, C, and D, and then you'll be happy because I just mm-hmm. don't believe in formulas like that. But yeah, um, but yeah I see my books as an act of generativity. Mm. Okay, so let's talk legacy then, because this did come up. And of course, you do touch on it in the book as well. What does legacy look like when you don't have children? One Shandy asked, what is something meaningful that can be done with property or money after one Mm. dies if it won't be passed on to children? Ooh, interesting. Well, the final (laughs) final chapter is called An Other Legacy, and it asks these sorts of questions. I do have nephews and nieces who will be the beneficiaries of whatever I have to leave behind materially at the end of life. Um, and I suspect, I hope that most people would have would have people that they would like to, you know, bestow their belongings and material goods on when they pass, even if they're not people they're personally connected to or related to. I think I think Helen Gurley Brown actually, you know, set up multiple foundations um, and you know, donated a lot of money in her life and probably even now still happening um, to, you know, kids in New York for kind of educational purposes. So those are those are some ways to think about it. But um, but yeah, it's interesting, the idea of legacy. I don't know if you feel this way. I personally have never really felt a strong need to leave anything of me behind. I'm sort of, mm. when I'm gone, I'm gone. And that's that. But I know that idea really freaks some people I, out. I, I know. <laughs> I, trust me, other things freak me out big time. Like the regret piece really right. haunts me. But then when I hear other friends talk about legacy, I'm like, eh. Yeah. I I never really thought that I would make that big a mark on the, on this planet and it was just too insignificant. But yeah. yeah, it really does seem it did come up a lot. It came up yeah. more than I expected actually. Mm. Okay, so let's talk then if we're kind of a, a sidestep here. Mm. Aging as a mm. woman in mm. a society that's completely mm. obsessed with youth and newness. You say quote western society has no place for old women. End quote. This places additional pressure on women to have kids as a way to valorize their mothers. The archetype of grandmother being the only valid and respectable embodiment of wise woman energy. Mm. Okay, so this came up a lot. Several Shandies asked about the guilt they feel. They know it's their objectively. They're like, it's my life to live. I understand that. But 
I feel bad because my parents, oh man, they want to be grandparents every day that I'm waffling about this or thinking, no, I'm taking away from a day that they could have as a grandparent. Mm -hmm. What do you say to them? Oh, well, I, I say I feel for you. And I, I think one of the reasons I've been able to claim my affirmative no is that I never felt that pressure from my parents. It was never Mm. implied by either of my parents that I was denying them anything by not having children, but I know that a lot of people experience this. I mean, if anything, I would say that this is potentially an opportunity to have a really interesting conversation with your parents about why it matters so much to them. Mm. You know, um, it could bring up some, it could be a way of becoming closer. It could bring up some really interesting conversations about the stigma, stigma and the pressure that they feel as parents without grandchildren (laughs) and and just kind of getting into a conversation about where does that come from? What's it rooted in? What are the expectations? Um, Yeah. I mean, I think as well, like as people get too closer to the end of life, there is an awareness of time is running out. And I think that having younger people around can be a distraction from that. Um, Mm. And Yes. So it's it's definitely not an easy conversation to have, but I think actually the ultimate, you know, the ultimate kind of way to go here is to, in whatever ways we can, start to make more peace with death being a natural part of life and yeah. the end of life being something that every human will experience. And the fact that we actually have so little literacy around how to, I, a friend recommended a book recently called Die Wise, which is really about taking agency over your own death and how you want to die, which I know gets kind of deep and heavy. But even the fact that I'm having to qualify this conversation, mm-hmm. yes, that just shows right. how kind of averse we are to even touching on this subject, which is absolutely an inter- as integral a part of life as birth, right? Yeah. So, um, well, it's so, the same yeah, with sex. Depends, we don't talk depends, about sex. We don't exactly. talk about death. Yeah. Yeah, same exactly. thing. Uncomfortable. So I think that, you know, depending on your relationship with your parents, even starting to have some of those conversations, you know. Um, yeah. But I think, again, it's sort of given that we've, we're told that children are the center of life. This, you know, we didn't really give an explanation for that word pronatalism, but pronatalism is really a, a cornerstone of sort of patriarchal ideology. And it's an ideology that says that parents are more valid than non-parents and that parenting is ultimately what human beings are here to do. When we live with that sort of coding in our systems, um, when we don't become parents and when parenting is sort of no longer part of our lives, we can be left feeling at a loose end. And I think the bigger question is, well, what else are we here to do? You know, how else can we have connections with other human beings? How else can we find joy and fulfillment and you know there are there are so many interesting avenues for exploration there but i appreciate that that's again harder for older generations to grasp um because they and especially women of older generations just didn't have the options to pursue life outside of motherhood to pursue fulfillment outside of motherhood Mm -hmm. and it's a luxury to be able to even like to be able to think about it honestly right uh You have a quote at the end of the book that just this came to mind was, sorry, I have so many pages. <sighs> the The option to decide whether we want to have kids and who we want to have kids with is a privilege that has been won by decades, if not centuries of feminist resistance and the fight for gender equality. Mm-hmm. It's like, I can see how some people whose parents or especially their mothers who are like, well, 
it's it's how do you even broach that you know like I agree obviously you have to have the tough conversations but Mm -hmm. I recently had tried to have a conversation with my dad about you know childhood life choices following your dreams all that stuff and he was like oh honey like you you think so much more deeply about all this stuff than (laughs) I ever did you know it's just like there's a generational shift there where we now have the time to think yeah yeah Yeah. and and we're lucky we're lucky and privileged to have the time to think about it and in some ways we're not yeah and in some ways we're not exactly Mm -hmm. you know there's like we live in an, info, in an age of information overload. And the plus side of that is that we're exposed to so many other options and opinions and avenues for how our lives could go and look. And there's, you know, per analysis paralysis is a real thing. Like yeah. sometimes too many options can lead to anxiety. And, no. it, and I think that in many ways, the kind of like conservative sort of, I will say backlash to the progress of the past few decades that we're seeing currently is sort of a, a sense of like, well, things used to be so simple. Can't we just get back to when it was just simple? You know, mm-hmm. when women were mothers, men went to war, and we, you know, cows were for milking and burgers, and like that <laughs> life was life was just so simple. Wait, what are cows for now? <laughs> what, what, well, but that's the point. We actually don't need nearly as many cows as we've got on the planet. No, no, we're no, currently sure. harvesting the rainforests, which literally keep us alive. Yeah, to yeah. Enough cows oh, I know. to make Trust hamburgers me. for the eight Trust billion me. people who want hamburgers. But uh, yeah, that's we're so on the same page. Yeah, yeah. Trust we're me. We're aware of this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so one more thing on the aging thing because I really this really hit me when I read the last part of your book and just the idea of grandmothers and that being like the Mm. valid role for an older woman. I love how you tie in witches Mm -hmm. into Mm. your book, them being hunted down for their own autonomy, especially older women who had, who were living alone. (laughs) So what advice do you have for women who struggle to find positivity in aging if they won't be mothers or grandmothers? For me, and I kind of end giving some of my favorite examples, having older, childless elder women role models um, has been really, really important. Um, and I've had so many conversations of people sort of, you know, Gen X women like me who are like, well, it's like Oprah and Helen Mirren. Those have been our <laughs> ladies, our go-tos. <laughs> and what's so interesting now is there are so many more older ladies without babies who are kind of like, you know, Michelle Yeoh, who just won her first Oscar at like 62, oh, was, a, yeah. was a great public example recently. Um, you know, Bernadine Evaristo, who's an amazing novelist who won her first Booker Prize age 62. Um, there are just so many more kind of older women who have pursued alternative paths coming through, doing amazing things with their lives, like vibrant and thriving and inspiring. And so for me, having all of those older women without kids role models is really important, actually. I loved how you you suggested picturing yourself as the older woman you would want to be and to <laughs> yes. look like. And I was like, it's something I've always struggled with. I'm, I'm a very past oriented person, I've learned, and mm. I have a hard time picturing the future. And it was just such a good exercise because it's the sort of thing that I've always just dreaded. You know, the only mm. association I have with getting older is dread. Like, what a horrible way to be. And instead, it's like, what kind of an old lady do I want to be? That's kind of fun, actually. Yes. And aging is a privilege too, let's not forget, you know? Absolutely. (laughs) Female friendships. As one Mm. Shandy put it, navigating female friendships in this phase is hard. Mm. And something about the simplicity of that sentence just like 
ugh, it, it hit me. Do you have any tips for women adjusting to this phase of life? You feel that pang, you know, your friend announces that they're pregnant and it's a confusing time. Yeah. You want to, you're happy for them, but you're also sad. Yeah. Do you have tips for navigating this chapter? This is actually the cover story of New York Magazine this week. It's sitting over there on the counter. I plan to read it the weekend. Um, but it's wow. like, can our friendship survive when one of us has kids is kind mm. of the, the crux of it. And you know what's been so interesting? I'd give some space to this in the book, in chapter six, um, mm -hmm. Found Family. Um, but when across the events that I've done, the retreats that I've led since the book came out, this seems to be the kind of the number one pain point actually across the gamut of the motherhood spectrum like wow. regardless of why somebody has children just this feeling of being ostracized in some cases left out certainly left behind um feeling the friendship kind of just change and be steadily eroded as you basically your life paths diverge and go in very different directions it is very very painful um so again i think the number one, very important, is to find your community of women without kids. You know, there are so many places where these groups are kind of starting together. I will be having another in-person retreat um, in March next year, hmm. um, which should be a really great experience. Um, but there are meetup groups, Facebook groups, all sorts of places now, Instagram pages where people are finding each other and finding ways to connect with other women without kids. Because I think actually just accepting the reality, yes, our lives are going to look very differently now, which means that our friendship is going to look different. It doesn't necessarily mean that the friendship has to end, though, which is why I'm intrigued to read this article, because my experience actually has been with the friends who are, who are, who are what I would call my sister friends, like the real, true, deep connections. The connection is still there. The actual day-to-day -day reality of our relationships looks quite different. Like we just don't spend as much time together and, and do the same things together. But the feeling tone of the friendship has stayed true. Um, and I think it's just about accepting that while a friendship might not look always look the same on the surface, like if the connection and the love is there, it will endure whatever happens, you know. And one thing I've really noticed as well, and that came became very clear in the research of the book, um, and reflecting on my friendships, I've been able to see that this is true. You know, we started off the conversation. You invited mothers to listen to this. This is for women, for women with kids too, right? And mm -hmm. I definitely, the book definitely does speak to women who have children who actually want to stay connected to the women they are without their kids and for their role as mother, not to sort of like subsume their whole identity. And what I've noticed is that with my mum friends, they never... They never invite their kids to hang out with us. It will often be like, let's go and do this thing without my kids. Like one friend, I've never actually met her child. Her child's like 12 now. I've never actually <laughs> met her child. And rather than feeling, rather than feeling like, oh, maybe she doesn't want me to, I'm like, no, she she wants to have a friend who she can hang out with and not talk about her child. If for it not to revolve around, you know, her role as a mother, where she actually gets to touch base with the woman she still is, the woman she always was before she had her children. So yeah, I think that is actually a really important role in the lives of mothers. And mm. even having, although it can be challenging, having some of these conversations again, when a friend announces she's pregnant, what role would you like me to play in your life as a woman without kids? I really value our friendship. I really hope we can stay connected. Maybe we can find ways to kind of 
have some us time, you know, and just also appreciating that in the first few years, that's probably going to be really challenging. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've also definitely heard other people talk about how, you know, in the early years, I I didn't really see them. I felt very left out. But then once the kids were sort of 10, 11, you know, getting a bit more independent, they kind of came back around. Um, so if you can just kind of wait out that initial <laughs> period, <laughs> like I said, if, if it's a genuine connection, it's a bit like, again, it's another similarity with quitting drinking. People think if I quit drinking, does that mean I'm going to lose all my friends? Because what do we do together? We drink together. Mm. Well, yeah, guess what? If the friendship was only about going out drinking together, then it probably won't survive mm. you quitting drinking. Or likewise, if it's only about going out drinking together, it probably won't survive one of you having a child, right? Because right. <laughs> right. they're probably right. going to be doing a lot less going out drinking. But um, if it's a genuine connection, it will it will stand the test of time. All right. I have two questions left. One is the one I wanted to close with, and one is my selfish question. <laughs> it's like my question. Ask Which them both. I... Ask them both. It's okay. 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 So I'll ask my <laughs> selfish one because the other one is a much better one to end on. <laughs> okay. Ruby is a. I was going to say, has anyone made the corny joke that you're a gem? Because you truly, I mean, you truly you know are. What? Nothing to do with your name. No. What? Re- uh, what? That's crazy. I don't think I've heard that. Wow. They're saying it behind your back. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to gloat. Now you ask your question. Okay. So this is my selfish question. Mm. They say you shouldn't make decisions based on fear, mm. but what if your fear of motherhood matches your fear of regretting non-motherhood? Mm. Ooh. I know. That's why That's I didn't want to end on this. <laughs> yeah. Why do they say you shouldn't make decisions based on fear? I mean, it depends if your fears are based in, you know, research and, yeah. you know, a material reality, then it's- why not make a decision based on fear? <laughs> <laughs> if, I'm a, if I'm afraid that, you know, my income is not going to allow me to, you know, support a child and myself without, you know, living check to check, that would be a, a valid reason not to have a child, I think. Mm. Okay. I, know, I mean, I'm quite, I'm, I am, I guess I'm, I'd skew anxious. Same. And actually, and actually that's another reason <laughs> I haven't had children mm-hmm. because in, from what I've observed, um, having children often looks like, you know, a series of small catastrophes that kind of need tending to and knowing that I have actually a very low capacity for stress and I get really quite easily spun out and into anxious states Mm. that's been a valid reason I think for me to question whether motherhood given that I don't have a close support network of family and community and friends and I don't have you know a private income or a husband who necessarily is you know going to be equipped to support like these are real concerns. They're mm-hmm. real fears. And I think they're valid reasons for me to have questioned whether I wanted sure, to be a mother. Sure. Okay. And also my fear of childbirth. I've been petrified of the idea of childbirth ever since I learned what it entails. <laughs> <laughs> valid. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny you say that, Andy. We, we've talked about this. I mean, ad nauseum. But yeah. uh, Andy's thing is worry he's like i already worry about so many things the idea of worrying that much well yeah they, they everyone always right. says like you're never going to experience the love you have with a child and i and i believe that to some degree but you're also never going to experience the worry you right. have with a child so right you know it's, it's six to one half dozen another yeah, yeah. it's a trade-off it's very okay. true okay final question 
Over the years of Dear Shandy, we're exactly three years old today. Not today, but in general. Okay. <laughs> Especially since this will come out in a few weeks. Yeah, we are in our fourth year. Yeah, we're just over three years old when this comes out. A recurring theme has been the grief of the path not traveled. Even if the majority of the times the feelings are confidence in being child-free, that's, that feeling can haunt us. What would you tell people who struggle with this grief? Sadly, literally, grief is part of being human. Again, grief is something that we have very little literacy for, very little understanding of, very little space for in a society that presents the number one goal as being happy, <laughs> you know? And so as hard as it is to see a grief again as part of life and to experience feelings of sadness as giving something that give texture to life, something that give meaning to life, actually, grief grief shows that we care you know mm. grief shows that we've loved grief shows us that we've experienced life fully um in some ways and so yeah as difficult and painful as it can be in the moment um learning to kind of i don't know live with Except. our grief and kind of like just be with it when it's present um and accept that without that contrasting feeling we might never really experience true joy you know mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. sounds a little bit cheesy but that said as well I do think that having community you know deep friendship um the professional mental health support if needed for those down difficult moments is also really really important um and I think as well this is one reason I've always sort of shied away in a way from being like embracing this sort of like defiantly child free because I'm like actually my choice not to have children is in many ways rooted in a lot of pain um that's been kind of passed down my lineage that's in my life that's part of my family background um and yes I made a conscious positive choice not to have a child and it's been a painful choice in some ways mm -hmm. um and telling me that as a, a child free person it should all be about celebrating the freedoms that I have it just feels like it kind of cancels out the painful parts of this choice as well the painful parts of this positive choice mm -hmm. right. so right. yeah I think grieving is part of what makes us human um so yeah and accepting that yeah, accepting it. it necessary yeah, yeah. Ruby Warrington, thank you so very much for this joining us today. I am fangirling. I was talking to a friend the other day about how I don't really fangirl. It takes a lot for me to be excited to meet someone like this. But your book, man, I was just like, I have to meet her. I have to just have time with her. And I'm just so, so happy that you had the time to join us today. Well, thank it's you. been great. Thanks for a great conversation. Some really good questions. So yeah, yeah I really enjoyed it. <laughs> thank, thank you, you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, man. Oh, wow, that was <sighs> chock full. Chock full. Sometimes I'm annoyed that time exists. I'm annoyed I that know. time exists a lot. But when we have these and people have places to be and workshops to lead. I, know. I, I think just, we stuffed in a lot. We, I oh, think we got a lot. This was chock full, but really we we covered about half yeah. of and, my questions. But I, and I will say I did get a glimpse of the cat. And I would like <laughs> to proudly say that I controlled myself. <laughs> you did. You no. did. You didn't want to use up the seconds no. addressing the no. cat. No. Yeah. We knew that we had a tight time crunch 
And man, I mean, she gives good answers. Good answers. Holy crap. You know what I noticed in her, I had to, I was just looking at her living space. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see a child free living space. It's like <laughs> all her books are like color coded. <laughs> Everything's at perfect right angles. There's no stickiness yeah, anywhere. Yeah. There's no like things lying. Stickiness. And it's like, you know, that's, that's a reflection of what she wants. Yeah. Whether that's good or bad. It's just interesting. Like this is the choice made control over her yeah. universe. Honestly, there were just so many things I wanted to talk about. She talks about this orgasmic affirmative yes mm. versus an affirmative no. And that was an idea that I kind of struggled with, honestly, for a few weeks. Like I had to marinate. I'm still struggling with it, but I have been marinating on it for quite some time. Uh, she, I, she talks about just so many things like we this was just skimming the surface i really went for just the biggest hot yeah. button like shandy's asked questions about regret not giving their parents grandkids all the, you know yeah. the, the the basics but even oh there was just too much to cover i think we should just accept the fact that there are certain guests we have on where we need a part two we should just start yeah. <laughs> visiting that you know yeah that's actually not a bad idea because there was more that i wanted to ask her no. um there are a couple of quotes i'm going to try and pick one I don't know if it's going to end at one. But when she talked about the friendships, mm -hmm. I didn't want to use up the time by reading the quote while we had sure, her on. Yeah. But I have to read this because it really struck me. And when she said that this actually has been kind of like the biggest topic that I was actually kind of surprised by that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would have expected that. I think living in New York City, a lot of my friends have not had kids. A lot of my friends who have had kids have gone to other states or were already in other states. But great quote. It can be hard for the non-mom friend to feel as disposable as one of the baby's diapers. The sheer intensity of the bond the new mom is forming with her child also shines a light on the transient nature of mere friendship and how quickly ties that may have endured decades can dissolve like cotton candy in the rain. Oh, I know, <laughs> I know. And when she talks about, we, we did touch, I, f I forced the issue to talk about the grandmother thing because that was really powerful too. The idea that as an older woman, you're really like, what are your options in our society? It's, I think this is going to change tremendously starting with the Gen X generation, which she also talks about. But, you know, this first generation that's like, what do you want to do? Sure, yeah. Do Like, what do you want to be? Right. Do, do what makes you happy. Yeah, that feels good. <laughs> and it turns out a lot of what makes people happy is maybe not having kids. Isn't that interesting? That. So she's quoting Jillian Ragsdale when she says this. Once you have to make rules about something in society, it's a clue that the thing you're trying to stop is natural. All these cultural rules that say women should be married, should have children. You wouldn't need that pressure if women weren't likely to make other choices if they had the freedom. Wow. I know. <laughs> I know this. Uh, this topic is just I was so nervous about coming into this one because I wanted to do it justice. You know, we'll have these major topics, these amazing guests. And um, I always want to do it justice, but not everyone is going to like carry the same weight to me personally. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this is one of those ones. No, and no. yeah, it was just really cool having her on. I was fangirling the whole time. Oh. <laughs> Um, do you have anything you want to add? No, I, I I just think it was really interesting when she was talking about fear. Mm -hmm. You know, like you can sometimes listen to your fears. Yeah. It makes sense. It's like, you know, there are obviously there are certain fears you should just face, you know. But like I have a fear 
of heights doesn't mean I should jump off a building. Doesn't mean I need to skydive. That's very bachelor. It's like, oh, you have a fear of heights. We're going to make you bungee jump and then you'll overcome your fear right. and, and you'll bond over it and whatever. Right. But yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. you don't need to overcome life, the fear. Life is, your whole life is kind of guided by a lot of fears. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, for better or worse, you are where you are because a lot of fear prevented you from doing certain things, which may have, who knows, may have led you in better places, but could have very easily led you in worse places. Yeah. So I, I found it interesting that she was just like, fear is okay. Yeah, it was a very raw answer to that. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what I was expecting. I, I mean, it was practically an impossible question to answer. It was what I was like, selfishly, <laughs> answer yeah. this impossible to answer question. But she definitely gave me food for thought. And her answer got me thinking, you know, the fear of something versus the fear of regretting something and how that ties into her orgasmic affirmative yes, which will make sense when you read the book, I promise. But when I look back on my own life, um, when I decided to become a singer, I made the decision to become a singer because I was afraid of regretting not having made the decision to become a singer. Your first decision based on regret. We, yeah. Based and on based potential on, regret. Yeah. A, a fear of regret. And what I've learned, and this is not to say that I hate singing. It's not that at all. It's just I have a really complicated relationship with what I do. And given what I do, it's often assumed that it's that I, I love it and I chose it with an affirmative yes. And so I think it's interesting that that core decision, which really shaped so much of my life, didn't come from that place. Yeah that orgasmic yes. And for me, a lot of this past year for me has been trying to get in touch with what that looks like and realizing that it's not so, it's like, it's actually a scary realization to realize that you don't know what you want and and trying to figure that out is both terrifying and thrilling. and also making decisions that are absolutely permanent has to be treated slightly differently than making decisions on whether you want to take a pottery class or, mm-hmm. you know, pursue photography. Yeah. So it's it's not something that you can take lightly if you are on the fence. Yeah. The permanence of it, I think, is not lost on any Shandy's watching or listening to this right now. No. It was uh, reflected in all of the questions asked. And I, Shandy's, I'm just so touched by the questions i mean they were so wonderful and thoughtful and i just felt like even though they weren't directed at me i'm just sort of like the vessel uh i felt so seen by them you know you feel less alone absolutely and i think that's the overriding takeaway of her book is you know she talks about the unsung sisterhood the sense of community that we should be building um i think this is just the beginning yeah and i think that's the perfect place to wrap this one. Is. Unless you have something else you want to add. Well, you know, I was thinking about the fear again, but <laughs> sorry. You're like, I'm not done with fear. Yeah, I, I'd like to talk about fear for another hour. But when I look back at my life and I do let fear get in the way of a lot of my decisions, but all mm-hmm. the decisions I've made to like overcoming my fear have all been the wrong decisions for me. Oh, interesting. All of them, mm-hmm. every single one. And I am grateful for them. Yeah. Because they made me who I am today, and I'm and I'm so happy I made those decisions. Yeah. However, every single one of those decisions was reversible, was yes. undoable. Yeah. So, again, just that fear, making decisions based on fear, sometimes 
is okay Mm -hmm. really resonates with me because you cannot send the baby back to the store. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of mixed messages that were given. You know, you were told that it's never the right time. Right. And that's used really to sort of encourage people to sort of take the plunge and just, you know, it's a leap of faith, that kind of thing. But then there's a really strong argument to be made that like if, if you're on the fence, like when in doubt, you, you don't have, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. And, you know, it's interesting because when I think about today and Gen X in particular, my generation, there's so much choice. Mm -hmm. There's so much choice. There's so many things to do. I always think back if I was me, Andy, was born in 1930. Okay. I would 100% guaranteed have at least two kids right now. At least. And I would have never thought about it. No. I would have never said like, oh, should I have kids? Should I, yeah. not? <laughs> I would just be like, got to go to the work, got to yeah. make the money, got to get home, provide for family. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't have choice. I would start a podcast. Like, <laughs> let's see. Should I 1935 Andy start a podcast yeah. or have a kid? So eh. true. So, you know, you have to appreciate the situation we're in as humans now. It's okay. not the same as it used to be. And it's, I feel like the rules sort of, I'm not saying they apply, but they're uh, asserted to apply the way they once did. Sure. Yeah. It's if we're never changing. Yeah. Like it's always, we're always the same animal, Mm -hmm. yet we deny that we're that animal all the time, more and more. I love how you you touched on how like you can't see a female nipple and it's like, oh, no, no sex, no, no penetration. God forbid. God forbid. Yeah. But, uh, but everybody asks, are you having a baby? Yeah. Like, I am having a baby, but I'm not having sex. What do you think about that? <laughs> like, oh, 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 good. Yeah, it's so interesting. I wonder how other countries feel when they observe that. <sighs> I think they all have their own version of that, actually. Everyone, everyone. If, look, we're all part of being human is denying that we're a living organism. Yeah. It's just, it's just part of the deal. And it's very weird. And that's why all... The things we do today are so against nature. Can we talk about that animal thing? Sorry, I kept meaning to wrap, but when she talked about the animals, she's and how she's quoting Julian Ragsdale here. It has never been, and who, by the way, is an evolutionary biologist. Yeah. It has never been necessary for any animal, including humans, to set out wanting to have children. What they have to have is a sex drive. I've, oh, oh my God. I, that, I was like, th- <laughs> I've always thought to myself, like, what would happen if sex felt like shit? What if it felt like, you know, you're like, just like, like rubbing like, your arm or something. <laughs> rubbing Yeah, like a real a vigorous arm rubbing. Yeah, and not, like, not a, you're not uh, no, you're scratching just, an itch. No, Wait, it's just itching getting red. A scratch, scratching an itch. You're slowly getting red. Like yeah. you're reddening your okay. skin. Like if that's what sex was, uh-huh. how many, would we, we would have never existed. We would have never been a species. Mm, interesting. Would anyone just be like spontaneous, oh, be like, I, I want to have kids? I feel like we would exist. It's just that we would certainly not have the numbers we have today. How because many, I'm curious. Because a many, pronatalist society, they want they want to grow. They want to expand. Like you, it's been indoctrinated in us for generations that this is this is not only, I mean, it's necessary for our, for our thriving, for our community, for our, our culture. But on top of that, it's like, we're convinced that it's what we want. Oh, I know now you're right. I'm talking about like <laughs> a million years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like if, you know, these like primates walking along the, the, the savannah, mm. if, the, if sex was not, didn't, wasn't good for them, it didn't create some sort of hormonal rush or feel good, mm. would they have had kids? There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, obviously... Yeah. There's no true answer to that. Yeah. There was more I wanted to talk about here. Found family. She goes in depth on that and the feeling of 
feeling less than feeling like you're lacking. Oh, uh, emotional inheritance. There's just so much shandies. If, if any of this rang true to you, then highly, 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 highly recommend this book was positively life-changing. And I cried many times. Andy heard me quoting it many times. Yes. There were there, the, the name Ruby has been echoing yeah, I'm like Ruby Warrington this, weeks. Ruby Warrington that. <laughs> As I go to sleep and when I wake up oh. every day. And, you know, I would also like to add, in case people think we're biased, uh-huh. um, this book did not sway you in one direction. It just no. made you think about it in a better way. I actually, way. if I had to choose one direction in which I think it swayed me, like if I'm not allowed to say 50-50, I would say it swayed me slightly in the direction opposite of what people are probably thinking. Yeah. So it's just food for thought. There was a lot to, to think about. Yeah. And it asks, it forces you to ask yourself questions that I will admit I have found very uncomfortable. You know, people talk about doing the work, right. doing the work. Sure. And it's so much easier to live in this state of just like sem- semi-consciousness, like a, a life of tasks and mm-hmm. responsibilities sure. and not go inward but it's so rewarding. Yeah. <laughs> it's so rewarding. Okay, I think we can wrap there. Um, we'll let we'll let the shandies take over in the comments. If you enjoyed what you heard today, you know what we will ask of you, and that is to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, follow us on Instagram and TikTok. Leave us Apple and Spotify podcast ratings and reviews. Tell your friends and generally do all the things you would do to support a podcast you enjoy. One last time, this is Women Without Kids by Ruby Warrington. We will link it below. And yeah, prepare to have your mind blown. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time on Dear Shandy. Bye-bye.